and welcome to Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. With me, Sean Delaney. I'm a teacher and teacher educator, and I'm the author of a book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, which is available now as an audiobook narrated by me. This is episode 417 of the podcast, and you can listen to or download all previous episodes by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on podcasts. Get in touch with me by writing to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. You can follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. My guest on the programme this week is Philip Dawson, who is a professor and associate director of the Centre for Research in Assessment and Digital Learning at Deakin University in Melbourne. Professor Dawson's areas of expertise are assessment rubrics, giving effective feedback to students, and reducing cheating in higher education. He is in high demand as a speaker on the topic of academic integrity. He is the author of Defending Assessment Security in a Digital World, and his website, www.phildawson.com, that's with two L's on Phil, has links to several resources in this area. In his spare time, he is an improv comedian. You'll like this week's podcast if you're interested in promoting academic integrity among your students. We also discuss the idea of authentic assessments and providing authentic feedback to students. Providing useful feedback to students is not as easy as it seems. Philip Dawson also shares some insights into how his hobby as an improv comedian helps his work as a university professor. When I met up with Philip Dawson on Zoom recently, I began by asking him what age students he's thinking about when he thinks about academic integrity. Ooh. So, so my default as someone who you know, works in higher ed is higher education students, but that's a, it's a little bit of a simplistic view because the academic integrity views that we have are set throughout our lives. Yeah, so students we see in higher ed are shaped by their high school experiences. And, you know, even we as a society, we have views about cheating and academic integrity that, that differ at different ages. There's an episode of Peppa Pig where all the students have set a project and they all go home and their parents do the project for them. And then they'll have a great laugh about it. And, you know, that, that says things about academic integrity for children of that age. So, yeah, I think higher ed, but I, I am interested in, in more broad ages too. So if you were speaking, say, to a high school teacher, uh, for example, what, what, what do they need to know about academic integrity? I guess that, that there's a set of technical skills to do with academic integrity that students need to have. And, you know, those are things around citing sources and, you know, university where uh, very concerned with, with that and some other technical skills. But there's also a, a broader orientation and there's a set of values that we want to develop in students and those probably matter the most. Um, the, the technical things people can pick up as and when they need them but the, the values are things that we want to want to develop. So you know things around being truthful, things around acknowledging the work of others, about being honest about what you've done, about not being embarrassed about your own contribution being relatively minor sometimes because you are standing on the shoulders of giants, as, as we say. Uh, so, so things like that, things around values, I'd be less concerned with the technical skills. So it's, it's almost about life integrity at that stage or integrity in life generally. Yeah, because we know that integrity is something that travels with people. So studies on medical students have found that medical students who have more academic integrity problems have more professional integrity problems as doctors. These sorts of things aren't isolated to academia. They're good things to develop, even if they did nothing about you know, cheating and those sorts of problems. So if we move on to the university level then, how can a lecturer or a, prof or a professor recognise and acknowledge solid university work that is original and that is completed by the student? I love the positive framing of your question there. And I think, you know, that the field does tend towards a positive view. So how can we tell when that sort of work's been done? Uh, my favourite way is to talk with the student. Uh, I used to teach computer science. And when we would sit down and mark the student's work, we would sit down with the student and talk through the lines of code in their work and say, oh, 
how does this part of it work? And we'd engage in a dialogue around it. And that's great because we know for things like feedback, dialogic feedback is our goal. So, yeah, I think some sort of dialogic approach is wonderful. However, uh, labour intensive, you know, that, that can be a really big problem. And, and, you know, from that, I would then say we don't need to be obsessed that the student has not cheated in absolutely every act of assessment. So I would say we want to use those more rich dialogic interactive approaches in a targeted way across a program of study. So I'm, I'm thinking maybe of, say, an arts course or um, maybe even an engineering course where there's 200 or more students in a class. It's very difficult to have that kind of dialogic interaction you're talking about in those settings. So, so, so what can you do there? Okay, so firstly, in Australia, a 200-student uh, class would be smallish. Uh, we tend to go for 2,000 or something like that. So we... Um, we're very interested in what scales and what can be effective with lots of students. And, you know, there's certainly, um, you know, models of scalable practices. A great website if people are interested in scalable feedback practices is feedbackforlearning.org. And, you know, some of the, the great dialogic feedback stuff uh, is written up there. But, yeah, let's say we're, we're really resource constrained. We want to determine if students have, have done the work themselves. I think a, a first step is to use technology tools that scale really well. So, you know, one of the things that we often use are text matching tools such as Turnitin. That is something that we can say probably had an effect on the decline in sort of copy-paste plagiarism. There are similar sorts of tools coming out for determining if it's likely someone wrote the work themselves or if they outsourced it to somebody else. So, you know, I'd say technology can play a part. Look, there's some things that we might look for in terms of, of student work to see if they've likely outsourced it. You know, we when we mark a lot of work, we come to understand what the common mistakes that are legitimately done by people who are our students are, and we we get a hunch that you know someone might not have produced the work themselves so those sorts of things as well so I suppose part of what you're saying there is being vigilant and I suppose expecting to find a certain level of work that is not that doesn't show integrity so so I guess there's two things to be aware of one of them is most people don't cheat and we should really carry that with us and you know not assume everybody is but along with that there is a significant enough portion of students who do cheat at some stage for a variety of reasons, some of which genuinely make you want to cry when you read the, the reasons why people have cheated. I don't think people who cheat are inherently evil people or something. I think a lot of it's uh, circumstantial and out of desperation. But with that, you know, somewhere between, say, 6% on the low end to 16% on the high end in terms of, you know, decent research estimations, 6 to 16% of higher ed students have outsourced their work. So that's, that's pretty significant. And what tempts them to do that? Okay, so the first thing that really stood out to me when I discovered this is that it's... Um, you know, the, the research out there suggests that it's not just something you search out, it's something that finds you. So there's some, some really good research uh, by Alexander Amagood about students, you know, posting stuff on Twitter about, you know, I'm having trouble with my assignment or I hate statistics or various other key phrases that result in bots marketing their services to you, trying to get you to cheat. Uh, so there's that, there's you know, you, you do a legitimate web search for help uh, with your essay and you won't get legitimate help. You'll get uh, contract cheating websites trying to promote their services. There's just a lot of ways in which cheating finds you rather than you finding cheating. So ah, it's difficult. And, and going back to the positive side again, how can higher education faculty, how can they foster values like honesty and integrity among their students? So I'm really fond of 
something that's got sort of two different names. Uh, one of them is uh, intellectual streaking, and the other more recent name is intellectual candor. Um, and this is Margaret Beerman and Elizabeth Malloy's work. And, and they, they're not talking about academic integrity. They're talking about how we as teachers should be a bit more open about ourselves, our lives, our work, our learning. In my other work in feedback, we often talk about how we as educators should, should discuss what it's like when we get feedback, what it's like for us, um, you know, to deal with that feedback and those sorts of things as part of our role modelling to students. The same sort of things should be applied to cheating. I think we want to be a bit more honest than we, we might be. You know, I think we want to have conversations about, you know, what, what does happen when people cheat? What's out there? Um, you know, I kind of liken it to um, conversations that we might have with young people about drugs. When we go in with a, you know, say no to drugs and they're all bad and they'll, they'll ruin your life and et cetera, I think they kind of see through us. But when we go in with a, a more honest conversation about pros and cons and about, you know, the dangers, but not in a big stick, never do this, it'll spoil your life thing. I think we, we get through with the message more. So, you know, one of the things we might want to talk with students about with, say, assignment outsourcing is these websites that produce assignments don't produce very good work. So Wendy Sutherland-Smith and Kevin Dullahan from, from my research group have analysed the assignments that we've purchased, and we've purchased a lot of them, and most of them didn't pass. When we got them marked by university markers, they weren't good enough. Some of the time they didn't give us what we paid for. And then um, some work coming out of Curtin University in Western Australia by uh, Leslie Sefcik, uh, John York, and I think some others, has found that these sites can even blackmail students. That's the worst, isn't it? That, uh, because they, they can even blackmail you maybe like after you've got your degree. Yeah, and that's really scary. So they come after you and threaten to tell your employer and your institution and you could lose your degree, you could lose your job. And the losing your degree thing, uh, at least in Australia, there's precedent that universities will revoke degrees that they have awarded some time ago if it's later found the student cheated. And, and going back then to modelling it, if, you're, if you submit a, an article to a journal yourself as a, as a professor and you get feedback and you're kind of told revise and resubmit, you would share that with your students? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So I, I've posted, you know, blogs and those sorts of things about how I deal with really difficult comments and what, what my personal strategies are. And I try and learn those off other people. I think we need to sort of open up a bit more about the challenges of, of work and learning. That's a very practical thing that, uh, that, that can be done, you know. Can professional development for university lecturers help them identify cheating in academic work? Yes. And the cheapest thing we can do is alert people to the potential existence of these types of cheating that they might not be aware of. So, yeah, we've, we've done some research where we've got uh, some university markers who are experienced at marking student work to mark some assignments, some of which are contract cheating and some of which aren't. And we've said, tell us which ones you think are contract cheating. And across a few research studies, they've told us which ones were contract cheating about 60% of the time. So they've spotted the contract cheating about that much. Other research published where people were just given contract cheating assignments and not asked to spot anything, no one's been concerned about contract cheating. Um, it's such a simple intervention to just say, hey, try and be on the lookout for it. Now, that doesn't mean if you spot work, you think's contract cheating, you get the student in and you grill them. No, we, we need support processes around all of that. So if someone has a suspicion, they could refer it to someone with the appropriate expertise to investigate it. But that initial building a hunch is something I think a lot of people are, are pretty okay at. They just don't know it yet. Now, we can do more professional development on top of that. In our research, we found that increases it to around the 80% level. But 
that's a pretty expensive intervention compared to just look for it. And when you talk about having a suspicion and investigating it, what does that investigation involve? Okay, so I, I really do break off these two things. So we've got the initial suspicion, which people are pretty good at. And then we've got the investigation. That's a sort of an expert skill set. Um, there are some people who have dedicated roles in universities for that. We've got a few at our university. Most Australian unis do have those sorts of people. Um, they say it's a, an essay. They might look at the metadata in the essay. Who are the authors? Um, how many times has it been edited? Th those sorts of things. Um, Sometimes people who do these jobs might have a database of names of authors from contract cheating companies because quite often you can spot those. So there's, there's a few of those sort of insider things. There's a great sort of, it's not a checklist, it's a sort of pro forma for investigating these up on the Australian Tertiary Education Quality Standards Agency website that was produced by some, some Australian experts. And it's a really useful thing if you ever have to investigate one of these cases. And I'll, I'll give you the link for that. Okay. So when you say, like, you might recognise the references, are you saying that SA Mills cite a relatively narrow range of, uh, of articles and research articles? I, I was saying they might recognise the authors because some of the, the author names, but you are onto something there as well. So when we've paid for assignments and we've said you've got to cite the required readings, they often don't cite the required readings. In addition to that, they don't cite the obvious things that all the other students cite because they, you know, they're not in class. They, they're not participating in things. And... Supposing a, a lecturer is marking work and they have a very strong suspicion that 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 the work that it is cheating, uh, but they can't they can't prove it. What what do you recommend that the the marker should do at that stage? Oh, so this this is really hard. Um, hopefully, there's some referral processes where it can go to someone who is more expert. I guess the other thing I would say to them is. And this, this might sound like heresy, but if a student cheats once and never again, I'm not particularly concerned. If it's a habit, if it's something that happens over time, and if it really gets in the way of their educational institution's ability to judge whether they are of the required standard, then I'm really concerned. But if it's a repeated practice, they're more likely to get caught up. So... I know some, some academics really despair and some Australian uh, research out of the cheating and assessment project found that, you know, the, the two reasons why people don't refer on cheating cases are that it's too time consuming and that it's too difficult to prove. That's what people tend to think. I would refer, but I also wouldn't be worried about the individual cases so much. People who do this a lot are hopefully going to get caught. Yeah. yeah, I remember um, a lecturer I had in college myself, he used to say, people can only learn to obey if they have room to disobey. And I think ah, the same nice. is true, people can only learn to be honest if they have the space to be dishonest. I mean, I, certainly we need to educate people about what is acceptable behaviour, although I really, I really don't buy the line that some of the really extreme forms of cheating, like contract cheating, can be an honest mistake. But I do think that you know, there are some teachers who will punish students very hard and call it cheating when they've done referencing blunders. And I think those are excusable, particularly early on in someone's study. Yeah, you have to look at the full picture. Are there particular kind of work that students are most or least likely to cheat on? The late, great Tracy Brettag led a study that was a national one in Australia with about 10,000 students. And they asked students, what types of assessment do you think students will be more or less likely to, to outsource to contract cheat on? Uh, and yeah, there certainly were some. Reflections and oral assessment tasks were in that least likely part. And, you know, oral assessments, what I was talking about earlier about, you know, talking with people. Interestingly, in our work, we've, we've got this result that's too good to be true that we haven't published yet because we, we need to replicate it. 
we asked students to cheat in an interactive oral assessment task. And some of them would cheat and some of them wouldn't. And we were blind to it and the markers were blind to it. But every single time they tried to cheat in it, our markers were able to tell. Now, whenever you get a result that's 100%, you, you need to go back to the drawing board and try and look at this from another angle because it might be, you know, a, a false great result. But it's still really promising. So I think oral assessment's got you know, some real strength there. Reflection's really interesting because this type of cheating was contract cheating, outsourcing. But let me tell you, people cheat in reflective tasks by embellishment, by saying what they think people want to hear, by just outright lying. And, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I've embellished some reflective pieces over my lifetime. However, they said they'd be less likely to outright get somebody else to do it, which I think is really interesting. There's some things they said they would be much more likely to, to cheat on. One of those that I think's really come up during the pandemic has been short turnaround time tasks. So during the pandemic, we've often not been able to do face-to-face -face examinations. So we've said, we'll give you a task and you have to do it within 24 hours. Well, the problem is students are saying they'd be more likely to cheat on that. And some other research suggests that it's very easy to get people to complete tasks for you within a short turnaround time. So I'd really caution educators who are using short turnaround time to stop cheating. So that, that's not a deterrent. No, it's, it's, it's not a deterrent in terms of student behaviour or in terms of the behaviour of people who would help you to cheat. And going back to the, that research that you said was the results were too good to be true, the, the kind of work that they were good at detecting cheating in was that, that related to oral assessments and reflections, did it? Uh, so that was oral assessments. That was we'd got students to take a piece of work that was either their own work or some work that we had bought off the internet and to become really familiar with it. So we even paid them time to become familiar with the work. And then they participated in sort of a mini Viva type task where they, they talked about it, uh, there was questioning about particular components of it. And yeah, if they cheated on it, our markers knew that. And are there particular disciplines where students are more or less likely to cheat? So th there's certainly research out there. I'm not confident in the quality of the research in terms of saying this. So I have that as a disclaimer first. But yeah, certainly it seems like nursing, business, engineering, those would be some priority areas for me if I was sort of having to choose based on the, the discipline where to focus my energies. But that's not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about others, but those ones have been a particular problem. I think engineering in particular at the moment, we have a real problem around the use of some of these study sites. There are study sites out there, very big ones, the most prominent of which is run by a multi-billion dollar publicly listed company whose name I won't mention, and I'm not inferring that they are a cheating company, but certainly a lot of people use their site to cheat. So they'll post up their assignment question. If they're in an online exam, they'll post up their online exam question and they'll get answers for it. Uh, that seems to be a particular problem in engineering at the moment. Uh, I'm not sure if that's because engineering students are crafty or they're the only ones who have discovered it, or if there's some disciplinary thing around engineering, but it's it's a concern. And are there any patterns then about, say, undergraduate versus postgraduate students or the, the stage of an undergraduate student, whether you're at the first year of your course or the last year? I don't have really strong data from lots of studies, but um, I believe that Rebecca Audrey from my research group, she's one of my PhD students, has found that sort of the more senior the students, the less of the cheating. It was more in the, the junior levels. But certainly it, it can happen at any level and, you know, even through to getting somebody to write your PhD thesis for you, including all of your materials for every one of your meetings with your supervisors. It can happen anywhere. You, you just wonder why. You know? Oh, you, you do, you do. And I, I think some people would say it's, I guess we're in a society where education from a, you know, educational credentials are such a powerful thing in people's lives. And some people are very desperate. 
At this stage of our conversation, I noted to Philip that in 2019, legislation was introduced in Ireland that specifically empowers Quality and Qualifications Ireland, QQI, to prosecute those who facilitate academic cheating. I asked him if such legislation, or if legislation to penalise those who avail of such services, was effective. In Australia and in New Zealand and some, some other countries, there's legislation more on the supply side. And in some states in the US, there's legislation on the supply side. Uh, Alexander Abergood and I did a, a study where we looked at the effectiveness of the legislation in the US. He, he posted up some requests for contract cheating or, you know, th- th- that sort of thing that gets you the hits on Twitter and found that most of the offers to do contract cheating work came from places where it was illegal to make such an offer. That suggested to us that possibly that legislation isn't particularly effective. I'm not aware of any evidence in favour of the effectiveness of that sort of legislation. So I, I don't think it's that effective an approach. I'm yet to see you know, a lot of high-profile cases being taken under that sort of legislation. Yeah, there are occasionally one or two cases, but the scale of this industry is such that it would require hundreds, thousands of these sorts of cases. And the operators of that legislation, in Australia, it's our higher education regulator who brings cases forward. I just don't know if they're resourced enough to, to really prosecute those. The other thing is it mostly happens overseas. So we know that in some countries like, say, Kenya, there are really substantial industries employing hundreds, thousands of people writing assignments for students, and there's really no chance of it ever being prosecuted uh, in a sort of transnational way. And can lecturers design assessments then to minimise the risk of students resorting to contract cheating? Oh, this is this is a great question. It's a really, really difficult one. So there's often some quite simplistic debate that happens around this. So I'm aware of a, an article in Times Higher Education a while back that argued we should get rid of essays because then people can't use essay mills, which I guess if you take a, a very literal definition, you, you certainly do get rid of essay mills if you get rid of essays. But uh, some research by Kath Ellis and colleagues in Australia has found that these contract cheating sites are producing practically any type of assessment. And, you know, sometimes the argument was put forward that we should move to authentic assessment to stop cheating. But, you know, it was found that these sites were also producing authentic assessments as well. I'm pro-authentic assessment in a huge way. I think it has so many benefits to it in the form of it being a more valid thing to what people actually do. You know, it's a better way to assess what people are going to be able to do if we assess the thing we want them to do. But yeah, just not as an anti-cheating approach. But one strategy that I do encourage is what I call authentic restrictions. So that's where we look at the way that someone who does the task does it in the real world and what restrictions they have to deal with. And we try to not impose extra restrictions on top of that. So the classic one is the open book test versus the closed book test. Some people think the open book test is going to be harder to secure or more cheating prone. But the problem is the closed book test, you have to ensure it stays closed book. If anyone brings any notes in whatsoever, it's no longer a valid way for us to judge what they're capable of. With the open book test, people can bring the notes in and it doesn't invalidate the assessor's judgment. Every time we add a restriction, like making it closed book, we have to enforce that restriction and know that we're enforcing it for it to remain secure. Um, to adopt a term from cybersecurity, every restriction that we add increases the attack surface, you know, the amount, the, the area that we've got to protect against. So that's a real assessment design thing I would impart on people is have as few restrictions as you can and only have the restrictions you know you can enforce. Because if you can't enforce it, then you're just giving an advantage to the people who can cheat. And when you talk about authentic assessments, you're talking about tasks that the person would be doing if they were practicing in this particular area. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And 
you know, authentic assessment ha- has many dimensions to it. There's a great review by uh, Villaroel et al. recently about, you know, where the literature is, but the dominant thing in authentic assessment is what they call the realism dimension. How faithfully does this represent what somebody in the real world actually does? If I can give a plug to another paper that I did recently with David Carlos and Pamela Lee from the University of Hong Kong, we're trying to broaden that notion to also cover authentic feedback, that we might want to look at the way that feedback practices work in the real world of the discipline and try and replicate those feedback practices in education rather than the the really strange things we do with feedback at the moment. So could you say a little bit more about that? That's, That's authentic feedback. Yeah, authentic feedback. So at the moment, feedback in in higher education normally involves the student writes something and then they give it to their educator who marks it and gives it back to them with some comments. There's not normally any expectation that that feedback really goes anywhere. We we might set up a subsequent task or something, but that's, that's not super common. So one of the aspects of authentic feedback is with the workplace, if my boss tells me something about the quality of my work and I don't act on it, there are very significant consequences for me. So that's that's one of the components of authentic feedback. But, you know, we're also looking at things like the form that feedback takes. If in the workplace, feedback is comments against some pro forma document, we may want to use that pro forma document. If in the workplace, feedback is a peer reviewing your work and giving you sort of oral comments on that, then we might want to use that. Yeah, so I guess just really try to reflect on how does it work? So we might want to go to practices like, uh, I interviewed a journalism academic once and he has students pitch their stories in a virtual newsroom. So they all sit around and they pitch a story And just like in a real newsroom, people talk about, you know, how the story could be made better, what's wrong with it, all that sort of stuff. That's one part of it. Another part of his feedback practices is fact-checking. He gets the stories fact-checked because that's another authentic part of how feedback works in his world of work. So, yeah, really analyse how feedback works in the profession, bring it into education, because ultimately we want to develop students who are able to operate in their world of work and engage in those feedback practices, not our feedback practices. Students often really struggle with feedback in their early work experiences. And, and I can see how that would work very well in courses that have a professional orientation. What about courses that are maybe less professionally oriented? I'm thinking of things like general science courses, general arts courses, and things like that. It's more difficult to do authentic assessments and to give authentic feedback in those settings. Is that right? Perhaps, but but I think th- there often is, say if we take history or something, there are ways that tasks can be authentic in history. Historians do a thing. Uh, I was once interviewing a historian and they were arguing to me that essays are authentic assessment in history because historians do produce that sort of thing. Historians review each other's work. How, how does that review sort of happen? I am an improv comedian in my personal life. I I love doing all of that. The ways that feedback works in the comedy world are totally different to the ways that feedback work in my academic world. And there are universities that teach uh, improv comedy courses. I would hope they use those same feedback practices that we use in comedy rather than here's your written evaluation, which, which would be useless to me in comedy. One of the things you talk about in, are you right about, sorry, is assessment rubrics. How do you understand that term assessment rubric? Because I remember hearing it when I went to the States first and it was pretty new in Ireland, whereas now people are using it more widely, but I'm not sure that people, I think it can mean different things. Oh, yes, yes. So I think a lot of people have arguments about rubrics where they're sort of talking past each other. So A minimal definition for a rubric would go to Popham's work. Um, And I believe Popham argued it's some sort of criteria, some levels of achievement against those criteria, which if if you're sort of visualising this, you might have the criteria as the first column in a spreadsheet and 
the levels as the first row in that spreadsheet. And then each one of the little boxes that you've then got to fill in are sort of quality definitions. So what this criterion at this quality level looks like. Now, we, we could all pretty well have a consensus around that. But beyond that, wow, there's a lot of variation. So I very much come from an assessment for learning background and a lot of assessment for learning people feel uneasy about rubrics because they've largely seen what we call analytic rubrics. Now, they're the ones which have a lot of numbers on them, a lot of this many percent if you do this at this level. And the quality definitions are often uh, what Roy Sadler would call analytic definitions. So they are really about the presence or absence of particular information. That sort of thing is often called an analytic rubric. It has some benefits in terms of improving the reliability of judgment of assessors. If you have a lot of people who use the same analytic rubric, they're likely to get the same result more than if they weren't using that analytic rubric. Now, a lot of people are averse to those because can you really specify quality in a series of tick boxes and, you know, presence or absence and add up these things? And what does that do to students? So that those sorts of things. On the other side, you've got holistic rubrics, which are rather than something that dictate to the assessor how they've got to judge the work. And, you know, if you tick these boxes, you have to give these grades. A holistic rubric is more something that has broad brush descriptions of quality to inform you, but you in your brain still make the judgment. You don't give the judgment over to the rubric and have to follow it. And, and that's where I sit. Now, on the more radical end, you've then got some great work on co-constructed rubrics, which is where you work with students to develop the rubric. And that is a wonderful exercise in developing what we call evaluative judgment, which is students' understanding of what quality work looks like and their ability to you know, make decisions about it, both for their own work and for other people's work. Uh, getting people to actually come up with what are the criteria, what does it look like, can be a great pedagogical practice. And what about the timing of that co-constructing the rubric? Should that be done before students work on the assignment or after they've completed their work on the assignment? I would do it before because we should be giving students an understanding of how they will be judged before we judge them and before they do the work. For me, that's just the honest way of doing it. So, yeah, I would give it to them beforehand. My ideal rubric practice is maybe a co-constructed rubric, although I still feel uneasy about that sort of surrender of control. I admire educators who do it. So we give them the rubric, we, we give them time in class to interrogate the rubric and discuss it. And we, we talk about it with them so they really understand it. Then when they submit their work, they self-assess against the rubric. So they you know, tell you where they sit. Then when I mark their work, I mark on a new copy of the rubric and I only give detailed feedback comments where my judgment differs from their judgment, which means I spend much less time providing feedback, but it's the feedback that's actually necessary because feedback's not just about improving the work, feedback's about helping people understand what quality work looks like and calibrating that judgment. One question I have about uh, giving feedback to students is how well do students hear feedback when an assessment is high stakes? I mean, you might be saying things to them, but do they actually hear it? Do they engage with it? Yeah, so there's been some great work done around the influence of grades on feedback. And it seems like grades sort of deafen people to the feedback comments that they could receive. There's been some, you know, approaches that people have taken, like not giving the grade instantly, giving the feedback, and then later on dealing with the, uh, the grade. And, you know, I'm even aware of, of people who are doing some much more radical things or advocating more radical practices that I saw on your list of um, podcast people. Did you have Alfie Cohen on? Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. I, I think he advocates for some really interesting practices. David Bowd and Naomi Winston have pushed recently, or, or it might be Ed Pitt, that they've pushed for 
separating grading and feedback as, as separate practices. And I think there's a lot of fruitful stuff there that we might want to, you know, do robust grading, which may or may not need to be anonymous, but then do feedback as a separate practice that's dealt with students separately as a definitely not anonymous practice that, that's much more relational. You also have written about sustainable assessment. And obviously sustainability is a, is a priority for everyone now, but what does it mean in the context of assessment? Okay, so sustainable assessment is taking this idea that students are with us for a while and we assess them, but when they leave education, they no longer have an educator who is assessing them. They need to develop the capabilities that they need for the rest of their life. So that's the sort of sustainable element. Evaluative judgment that I talked about before is, is a key part of sustainable assessment. So we know that, say, we're, we're training a surgeon. We want that surgeon to graduate capable of doing surgery, yeah, but also capable of knowing when they've done a good enough job, when their colleagues have done a good enough job, whether something was safe practice to do or not. So to really be able to make judgments about the quality of your own work and the work of others, because we're just not going to be with them forever. They need to be able to self-assess. And do students learn to do that by doing what you've said earlier, you know, getting authentic feedback, having a maybe co-constructing a rubric and so on? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the authentic feedback definitely has a strong element of evaluative judgment, uh, co-constructing rubrics. We need to really look at how how do people evaluate things. That's part of how we we develop our evaluative judgment. We want to you know get students to do that self assessment practice, like I talked about, and comparing our judgment against theirs and having conversations. And we want to get students out there, you know, in in the world of work and seeing what are the artifacts that sort of say what quality looks like. You know, I've got a um, a student in construction management, Chad Gladovich, who's done some great work on how do students learn what quality looks like on construction sites? How, how does that work? And yeah, he, he actually really incorporates that into his pedagogy and really gets students to write about, you know, not just the construction sites that they observed, but what, what was quality on those sites? What wasn't quality? And, and he engages in dialogues around that. Philip, we're coming near the end. So I have some general questions that I put to uh, all guests on the programme that I'd be interested to hear what you, your, your take on them. The first one is, what is school for? Or what are schools for? Schools are about learning, really, but not in a narrow sense. So not just about learning the curriculum, I see what my children learn at school and so much of that is, you know, learning how to be friends with people, learning how to have wonderful relationships with people, learning things that we as a family could, could never provide to them. So, yeah, learning but, but in a broad humanist sort of way. Not just the kind of things you can do online. <laughs> I think there some of those things are a lot harder to do online, and, and certainly, you know, having been a lockdown parent and, and a homeschool dad, it it was it was really hard. We're really fortunate to be out of that and having no cases in Australia at the moment. But yeah, it can be really hard. Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? When I was in high school, I was sure I was going to be a computer programmer. And I had this one teacher, Mr. Fitzgibbons, and he just kind of set us loose on writing computer software. And I can't say he really knew a lot about it himself, but he really set up the circumstances in which we could learn to write computer software and he would challenge us and extend us and really set no limits on what it was possible for us to do. So I produced, I was um, teaching Taekwondo at the time, and I produced some software that you could take a photograph on a digital camera, remove the floppy disk from that camera and plug it into the computer. And this code would analyze the technique and provide you with tips on how to improve 
your your kick or whatever it was that you were doing and to sort of have come from nothing to being able to to do that and with with such little guidance I, I was just amazed at how someone can not teach in a didactic sense but create all the circumstances necessary for students to do great things that's very very interesting what is your vision of an educated person someone who is really able to to engage in society in a full way in in a in a critical way in our democracy and all of that and pursue whatever it is they really want to pursue in life um, and have that sort of capability to be both an independent learner and, and really pursue that but engage with others and 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 build that great learning community collaboration with them who or what inspires you? My boss. My boss is David Bowd, and he is, I'm not quite sure how old. He's come out of retirement to run our research centre about half a dozen years ago. He has written more articles on education than sort of anyone I know. He has written about so many different things. He's the leading expert in in so many very different things. And alongside all of that, he's got time for everyone. So Dave will provide thoughtful comments on whatever work anyone sends him. Uh, don't take this as an open invitation to send Dave your stuff, but he'll probably give you useful feedback on it. He's always got time for everyone. He provides the most insightful comments whenever he's in a meeting he doesn't say a lot but when he does it always converges over to what Dave said because somehow he's he's just so clever and when you're with Dave you've got his 100% attention uh, and I I've even <laughs> I've even witnessed in a conference you're watching a presentation and it is the most boring, worst presentation you've ever seen in your life and people are falling asleep and on their phones or whatever and Dave is sitting there 100% focused and he's asking a very helpful, insightful question at the end. So just that sort of helpfulness and presence. I, I want to have that, that, that focus and generosity. Wow. Have you a favourite writer, book or blog about education? I think I'm, I'm probably going to go with um, with Dave again. I know it's kind of repetitious, but so many of the concepts that I've talked about had their genesis decades ago in, in some of Dave's work. And one of the things that really inspires me is Dave's openly told told me that he actually really finds writing hard, and I find that really really helpful because. Sometimes you can think that people who write really well have it so easy and everything comes naturally, but it's, it's normal to find writing difficult. So, yeah, I guess there's that element of sort of intellectual candor to it. And is there a particular book or article that he's written that you, that you really like? He wrote a great piece on sustainable assessment that really changed the way that I thought about assessment. There's often a view that assessment's purpose is to award grades and this piece of Dave's was really one of the first ones to, to challenge that and not just with a formative summative divide but to really say what what purpose does assessment serve uh, you know assessment doesn't just have the formative summative thing assessment tells us what our disciplines value it tells us what what society value it, it does so many different things Okay, I'll look that one up. And finally, Philip, how does your knowledge of stand-up and improv comedy inform your work as a university professor? One of the first things is we fail most of the time in improv. So it's getting more okay about failure and, you know, to pick yourself back up after you fail in all these different things because there's always another go. So that, that's one thing. Another one is we have this principle in improv called yes and. So yes and is you say something in an improv scene, you, you say to me, 
oh, it's great being near this waterfall. And I say to you, that's not a waterfall, that's a spaceship. I've immediately shot your offer down and we've got a terrible scene because we don't have a, a base reality we can all agree with. Yes, and says, yes, that's a great waterfall. And I add something to it. So I might add, and it's great that I'm wearing my wetsuit. And then we've immediately got this thing of who goes and visits a waterfall wearing a wetsuit? What's that? So it's the idea of we don't shoot people's offers down, we build on them. That doesn't mean when people do something ludicrous or offensive or whatever, I'm on board with that. I'm not. But I accept the, the underlying reality. So I'm trying to be more yes and. Academia can be very what we call no but. Someone says something in a meeting and you immediately try and shoot it down and offer your alternative. And we really can't collaborate and build something that way. So yeah, yes and. And then I guess in a more practical sense, since I've started doing improv, which is the most terrifying thing in my life, giving talks or teaching, it just can't compare in terms of the level of danger involved. So I'm a lot less nervous about those. So if you want to become less nervous about public speaking, there's your answer. Try being an improv comedian. Those connections between improv comedy and university professorship were made by Professor Philip Dawson from Deakin University in Melbourne, bringing this week's Insight Education to a close. You can listen back to this and 416 previous episodes of Inside Education by going to seandelaney.com and clicking on podcasts. You can now purchase Inside Education merchandise such as t-shirts with the logo on it by going to cottonbureau.com. My book about teaching Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have is published by Routledge and is available as an audiobook on Audible and all major audiobook platforms. Follow me on Twitter at InsideEd. Get in touch by writing to Inside Education Podcast at yahoo.com. Until the same time next week, this is Sean Delaney signing off. Thank you for listening.